Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Please follow along and, and read with me. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and many thanks to those who assisted with the teens lock-in on Friday night. Uh, I think there was 20-some teens and then a whole slew of volunteers. Uh, you have permission to sleep during the service, but apart from that, there's no other permission slips granted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we thank you that indeed amazing grace that has been lavished on us and the opportunity to know that those who've placed those of us who've placed our faith in you that uh, we will be with you 10,000 plus 10,000 and on and will go in your midst Lord uh, we pray that you would just help us to be faithful to the task that you've given and as we're reminded here in Acts chapter 2, you've given us an incredible resource, that is the Holy Spirit. Guide us as we go to the text today, Lord, and we thank you that today is also sanctity of human life. And we pray for uh, those that are on the forefront of pushing and promoting and securing legislation, etc., that would protect the unborn. And Lord, we pray as well for those that... Uh, uh, have passed into your presence and we thank you for Al George and we pray for the families they continue to mourn and the gospel to go forth there. Now Lord guide us as we go to the text in Jesus name. Amen. Well if you would turn to Acts chapter 2 that is where we are this morning Acts chapter 2 verse 1. If you've just joined us we're moving through the book of Acts and excited about our journey in this. This recipe has ranked among America's most valuable trade secrets. Keeping the elusive mix of 11 herbs and spices under wraps has been paramount. 
not to mention it's a great marketing tool, but we won't go there. In 2008, this Louisville, Kentucky-based company used a Brink armored truck and a briefcase to mark top secret and made it a big show of beefing up security at the vault containing the original handwritten recipe. In other words, the recipe may not be obtained through sticky fingers, but it certainly is finger-looking good. And you know the recipe. That is Kentucky Fried Chicken's original, right? Mm -mm. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the recipe of what it takes to birth a church. And it's very simple. It's one key ingredient, and we're going to see here 120 followers of Jesus that it takes to birth a church. And let's look at the text. It states, now, when the day of Pentecost had come, Pentecost was held as a Jewish festival. There were several of them. This is one of three key festivals because it was required in the Old Testament to make a pilgrimage. And we'll talk a little bit more on that in a minute. But Pentecost occurred after the Feast of First Fruits, 50 days after Passover. And for many Jews, this festival was a symbol of the celebration of giving of the law which is key. It will become, for the believers, this early church, it will become the celebration of giving the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a little timeline here. Jesus resurrects. He then appears for 40 days where he will ascend, and that's in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus told them, in a few days, I will send the Spirit to you. That's actually 10 days. That gets us to Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes, and that leads us into the church age. And so this is a vital time frame. In fact, if you, you look at the Jewish festivals, the church reshapes them. Passover becomes the death of Jesus as the Lamb of God. They would argue it, and I would argue it points to that. The Feast of First Fruits pictures his resurrection from the dead, and Pentecost is the giving of the Spirit. The Feast of First Fruits occurred the day after the Sabbath, after Passover on a Sunday, because remember, the Sabbath for the Jew is Saturday. It's the holy day. You know, I mentioned this before going to Israel. It's a real bummer because Friday is for the Muslims, Saturday is for the, the Jews, and Sunday is for the Christians. And so those three days you've got to navigate as a tourist what you're going to see, uh, whether it's open or closed. But here we see in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, "...became Christ, became the first fruits of them that slept." And indicating it's, this is a Sunday that they celebrate. Pentecost will also be on a Sunday because it's seven weeks plus one. And so consequently, the first day of the week serves Sunday in which believers gather to celebrate the resurrection, to recognize the birth of the church and the coming of the Spirit. So this event is significant. It's huge. And remember, Acts is that pivotal book for the entire New Testament. So the text tells us that they've all come together. Who's they all? Well, I think that goes back to the 120 that we see in chapter 1, verse 15. And, and so they're all gathered. There's the 11. Now Matthias is, is put into the mix. Now we got 12 again. You got Mary. You've got the brothers of Jesus. And they've all gathered. And that's key because in Acts 26, 26, it states, this was not done in a corner. <laughs> this is public. I was thinking about this as I read Acts, as I read this passage, Christianity is definitely not a dead religion. You see that in this book. Christianity is not a social event. It wasn't reserved for Christmas or Passover, Easter. 
Funerals, no. It's not an impersonal religion. It's very personal. It's communal. It's why they're gathered together. And it, Christianity defies all understanding. We talked about this last week. It's only by the 300 years from the birth of the church, Christianity becomes the state religion of Rome, the entire Roman Empire. How can that happen? I mean, that's a, but a miracle. It's a marvel. I mean, think about this. Satan has, he is, and will continue to target the church. People have misunderstood, preach error, walked in sin, become indifferent. Interesting, a recent uh, Associated Press gave out a research poll, and it showed that 30% of Americans now do not identify, well, they identify themselves as non-religious. What's more alarming is 43% of ages 18 to 29 identify as non-religious Non-religious. They don't have anything to do with religion. Forget Christianity. Satan is doing a very fine job of undermining the church. However, <laughs> let me also state as well, we know that uh, there were almost 6,000 martyrs in the church last year alone. 90% of them were Nigerians. 100 of them were massacred on Christmas Day. Why is there still a church? The answer is very simple. What we're going to see in this text. God has sent and continues to fill the church with the Holy Spirit. To guide, to direct, to empower. Vance Havner made this statement. He's correct. We are not going to move this world by criticism of it nor conformity to it. But by the combustion within our lives that are ignited by the Spirit of God. Wow. And so there, if you're following along in your notes, there's the first point is while the coming of the Holy Spirit on that Pentecost was a once-for-all event, it will not be replaced. It doesn't mean that the Spirit still isn't involved in the church. It leads me a little to a side note because there's words that are often thrown out with the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, uh, filled with the Spirit. What do all of these mean? How does this fit with what we're going to look at here in this text? If we trust Christ as our Savior, we're baptized in the Spirit. This happens at conversion. It happens here at the birth of the church. But subsequent individuals who place their faith in Christ, we're going to see this time and time again in the book of Acts. They are baptized by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 says the, the, the baptism of the Spirit who makes us members of the body of Christ. Now, not to confuse that with water baptism... That's a literal thing that we do to identify that we are Christ followers. But the figurative sense of the baptism of the Spirit, that occurs when we've accepted Christ. We're never commanded to pray, Lord, baptize me in the Spirit. Nor are we even commanded to pray, seal me with the Spirit. Those occur when we've placed our faith in Jesus. The sealing, Ephesians 1, and when you heard the word of truth... Paul says, that is the gospel of your salvation. When you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of your inheritance. It's a security. It's a marker. You are his. So thus, as we look at this passage and as we journey through and, and observe the Holy Spirit, there's a couple little caveats I think we need to recognize. First of all, to pray that the Holy Spirit would come in our midst is theologically incorrect. He's already here. <laughs> he dwells with all of us who know Christ as our Savior. To pray for another Pentecost is also problematic. 
I would argue we would not ask for another Pentecost as we wouldn't ask for another Calvary. These are events. Remember, the book of Acts is describing the birth of the church, and we'll see this as we journey through it. And finally, to pray that the Holy Spirit is not taken from us. We read Psalm 51. In the Old Testament, that was true. The Spirit could come and go. That is not true in the New Testament era. It is a permanent dwelling. The disciples weren't just given the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to pursue personal holiness. They were, they were brought in as for corporate worship and to be witnesses through the power of the Spirit. Jesus promised in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. That is the Spirit of truth. And he will reside with you until I will be with you. So there it is. It's a permanent indwelling of the Spirit. So... As we go to this text, what then confidence? What do we pray for in light of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me give you three things. First of all, we pray that we are controlled by the Spirit. It means we're confessing sin and, and we're walking in obedience. I'm referring, of course, to those of us who know Christ as our Savior. Secondly, we pray for the Spirit's guidance and understanding of the, the God's Word. Inductive Bible study, and that is studying the Word, begins with prayer, I would argue, and it ends with prayer. And third, we pray that the power of the Spirit to work in and through us, Lord, use me. In so doing, the Spirit will fill us for what the Lord has seen, seeks to accomplish in and through us for His glory. That's the goal. Remember, the Spirit came to glorify the Lord, not Himself. This is key. I know we're splitting hairs, but it's so vital. Well, let's get back to the text because it's so exciting, right? It's Pentecost. Here we are. It says, suddenly a sound. The curtains weren't waving. Hats didn't go blowing off. No, it's a sound like a violent wind blowing, coming from heaven. That's key. And filled the entire house where they were sitting. This, the, the Holy Spirit, yes, is coming here, but let's not forget the Holy Spirit was involved in creation, we could argue. The Holy Spirit was involved throughout the Old Testament. He was certainly involved in the life of Christ. We see time and time again. But here the Spirit comes, and it says they're gathered in a house. <clears throat> Scholars debate on this. I will argue this is a reference to the temple. Now, we could debate, but... At the latter part of chapter 2, Peter gives a sermon. It says 3,000 people responded to the gospel. That's a lot of people to put in a little casa. Uh, you know, I don't care how big your casa is. That's really hard. Um, also, house is used of the temple elsewhere in the gospel of Luke. But they could have started the house and moved out, whatever the case is. What Luke does is he provides us objective, external Pieces to confirm the, in, the internal empowerment of the Spirit. Otherwise, I'm not sure I believe you, Luke. Well, let me give you three things is what Luke's going to do. It's like going to the BMV, right? And they want proof of identity. <laughs> you know, they, they need your birth certificate, your marriage certificate, your death certificate, the last 30 bills, your DNA, your DoorDash delivery receipts from the last six months. I don't know. It's crazy. They need proof. And here's the proof. There's three signs that notice in the text that we see. The first of these, of course, is the rushing wind. Wind in the Old Testament is the same term used of spirit. They're used interchangeably. It's interesting, isn't it? It's used of God's gift of breath of life in Genesis. 
when it's given. Again, it's the sound that's being highlighted, and that's key. Because apart from Luke's use of the word sound, it occurs in only one other place in the New Testament, and that is in Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews 12, it's describing the revelation that came down on Mount Sinai. This is huge. And it's, but it's not just the wind that they hear. It says in verse 3, it says, The tongues spreading out like a fire appeared to them and came to rest on each one of them. So now we have fire. You've got wind and fire. They often go together throughout Scripture to, to, to indicate there's divine activity. Uh, Ezekiel, or excuse me, Elijah in his ascension in 2 Kings 2, it says they were walking along. That's Elijah and Elisha. I always get those two confused, right? And I should have called him George and Sam. I don't know. But you got Elijah and Elisha. They're walking together. Suddenly, a fiery chariot, chariot pulled by fiery horses appeared. They went between Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah went up to heaven in a windstorm. There it is. So you got fire, and you got the wind. The tongues, uh, this fire appearing like a tongue that spreads over them. This is the description that's common in the ancient world. Fire was seen as something that laps up. It, it devours that which it embraces. And again, God's presence coming in fire. I mean, we could think of several incidences, couldn't we? The burning bush that Moses saw, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites, uh, the Ezekiel's call. We see fire time and time again. And so here you have this unusual outpouring of the Spirit. There will only be four unusual outpourings of the Spirit in this entire book. And each one of them, I would argue, is not normative for the church. It's showing us the birth of the church. In Acts 2, we start, it's 100% Jewish. Now, we're going to see some proselytes. We'll talk about that. But in the Jewish mind, it's 100% Jewish. The next occurrence that we will see of the unusual outpouring of the Spirit is Acts 8. Those are Samaritans. I'm not trying to be crass, but in the first century, they're seen as half-Jews. They're not pure Jews. They've been interracially married, and so thus, they're not seen quite as pure. And in what we see this gospel, it's not just for the Jew, it's for the Samaritan. We get to Acts 10 and 11, we have the first Gentile. It's also for Gentiles. And the only other unusual outpouring of the Spirit is in Acts 19, and that's followers of John the Baptist who are located in modern Turkey. They, too, have been brought into this equation. Again, showing us the establishment of the church. And so we see the wind, we see the fire, and then we're not done. You know, move over Rosetta Stone and Duolingo. Because it says all of them were filled with the Spirit. Don't, don't miss that. All. And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit. Here it is. The empowerment of the Spirit enabled them. Remember Acts 1.8, but you will receive, Jesus told them, power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts. What we're going to see here is a clear indication this is where we're headed. You say, well, I don't know if that would be successful being called to be witnesses. How do we know this will happen, that the gospel will receive to the ends of the earth? Why? Because it's successful, because the Lord has commissioned it. He administers it. He funds it. 
and he serves as the basis for his own reputation. That is why this has and must be successful. <laughs> and they, they speak in tongues. Now, there is a lot of confusion here, and we'll get to this later. This is not the tongues that we see in 1 Corinthians. That is an utterance, and there has to be an interpreter. This, in here in Acts chapter 2, we're talking about a foreign language. The basis for it is clear in verse 4, and that is that they were filled with the Spirit. It's a genitive of content. It's what embraces them. It grants them the power, the witness. We will see several times in the book of Acts the filling of the Holy Spirit. The phrase will occur in Acts chapter 4 when Peter addresses the crowd. It will occur in 6.3 when there are those that are called to help the widows. And it will occur in 9.17 when Paul is commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so here you see not only the baptism of the Spirit, that is, it's placed upon them, dwelling, but also you see the filling that occurs, and again, at several other times in the text. As I look at this, and this is there in your notes, throughout history, the living God has acted intervening in our helpless and sin-tainted world for his glory. But think about it. If God didn't intervene, there is no hope. There is, there is no hope found in ourselves. Thank the Lord he didn't say, just go be witnesses. Hope you can do that. No, no, no. Because I'm going to give you the spirit to go before you, O church. It is God who created time. It is God who acts in and outside of time. And it's God who will be there at the end of time. <laughs> Sticking through, just through scripture Think of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's our creator. Or Moses and the burning bush where the Lord declares, I am God. He is our living and holy God. The Israelites at the Red Sea, when the Egyptians are coming in fast and furious and things don't look good, the Lord shall fight for you, he declares, and you remain still. Be quiet. Let me deal with this. He is our defender. He's our warrior. Elijah facing those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And God brings down fire and laps up the altar that Elijah has poured water over. He says, the Israelites declared, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. He is our almighty and all-powerful one. Nehemiah completed the construction of the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. And the text tells us all knew that God had intervened. He is our sustainer. He is our provider. Then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar declares of the Lord, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. He is our miracle worker. At the birth of John the Baptist, his elderly father, Zechariah, declared, Blessed be the Lord God Israel, because he's come to help and redeem his people. He's our redeemer. And when we were dead in sin, <laughs> rebellious against a holy God, Ephesians 2, 4 declares, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with us, provide us a means of salvation. He is our gracious and merciful Savior. But God, time and time again, and we get to Acts 2, and we see the power of God coming upon believers here as the church is being birthed. 
And we're told in the text that there were devout Jews from every nation. Of course, they're devout. They've made the pilgrimage here all the way down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem so that they could worship the Lord. It says from every nation. It's a bit hyperbole, no doubt. But what it's saying is symbolic of all lands. Most scholars believe what we're talking about are Jews of the diaspora or the scattered Jews. And you look at these these 15 towns or people groups that we're going to look at in a minute. They're all large pockets of Jews in the first century where they live. And we'll see that. I mean, for Rome, for instance, had over 50,000 Jews in the first century. But why Pentecost? Why is, again, this so key? Why would we have so many people at Pentecost? In fact, according to Jewish writers from the first century, there were more Jews at Pentecost than there was at Passover. Reason being, to travel... Passover is earlier in the year. It's more difficult to travel. But also, those who made the, perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime journey, they'd often come for Pentecost and they'd stay all the way through. I'm sorry, they'd come for Passover and stay all the way through for Pentecost. It was only seven weeks. What a vacation, right? Here we go. So they would stay here. They would dwell here and, and, and reside in Jerusalem for this event. Let me just show you again the text that we looked at, because this is going to come through loud and clear as we look at this scene. The Holy Spirit is promised to them, the apostles, and that is, of course, the, you could put the church age, that really should call the church age, uh, because when the Spirit comes, the church is birthed. But it's an indication, I would argue, what we're going to see here, this gospel is going to go to all people. If you jump to verse 9 in this scene, Again, you will see 15 various peoples and lands. In fact, if you look at this list that we go through, let me just show you this next slide. <clears throat> you will see this, this scattering. The list will begin in the east, all the way over past Iran, modern Iran, all the way down to Mesopotamia. Then the, the list will go, interestingly, north, to modern Turkey, then it jumps down south to northern Africa, and then it will go west. And in fact, if you look at the last line of this list, it goes back to Rome. That's where this gospel is headed. That's where Paul will be imprisoned by the end of this book. And what it shows us, all four points of the compass, with Jerusalem being in the center, excuse me, are given. I'm reminded of a couple Old Testament texts. Isaiah 11:12 says, "He will raise, God will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth." And Isaiah 43 says, "Fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, from the west, I will go to the north, I will go to the south, I will bring my sons from afar and my daughters to the ends of the earth." Referring, obviously, to the kingdom that comes. But the, what you see in Acts is a foreshadow to all that is going to take place. Verse 11 mentions that there are not only Jews here, but there's proselytes. And proselytes, was, that's a Gentile who had received circumcision, if they're a male. And they've gone through the purification rites and have offered sacrifice. And, and so they are, not only God fears, they're beyond that. They are seen thus as ones brought into the fold. In the first century, more women were proselytes than men, but I guess that makes sense. We won't go there, but 
Yes. <clears throat> you can see the language is understood. It's mentioned in verse 6. It's mentioned in verse 11. That they, they understand what is being pronounced. In fact, the text tells us, look at verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own language. A better rendering of that word would be dialect. They're not just speaking German. They're speaking one of the 250 dialects of the German language. It's very specific. And, and of course, the question is why? Why would they be speaking these languages? They all know Greek. That's international language. It's like English. Wouldn't that suffice? Pentecost, I would argue, two things. Was a reversal of the judgment of the Tower of Babel. When God confused humanity with various languages. Remember the scene? We're going to build this tower to God. We're going to be like God. We're going to be united, humanity says. And God says, I don't think so. And so he strikes them with foreign languages. It was great, created another department for the university. But you got Spanish and Chinese and the list goes on, the various languages. In fact, Jewish tradition tells us, Jewish tradition at the time of the New Testament, envisions in the end there will be a reversal of Babel. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the War Scroll, as well as the Testament of Judah. The Testament of Judah says you will be one people of the Lord with one language, and all people shall glorify the Lord together. And there's, there's even further evidence of this because it says they are confused over this, and that is the same word used, a Greek translation, in Genesis 11 for the word Babel. <laughs> so in one way, Pentecost reverses the curse that, has occur, that occurred in the Old Testament. I mean, think about it. The building of Babel was an act of rebellion. Pentecost was a ministry of humble submission to God. Humanity in the Old Testament came together to be like God under the time of Babel. But at Pentecost, humanity will be reached in order to glorify God. And God's judgment scattered humanity. The coming of the Spirit unites believers. I love Warren Wiersbe's comment. He says, the Tower of Babel was a scheme designed to praise men and make a name for men, but Pentecost brought praise to God. End of story. So in many ways, that's what we see here going on, but there's a second, and I think this fits with the overarching theme of the book, Acts 1-8, and that is we have a gospel that is for all people. It's not confined to the, the Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, this message is to begin, to take into the ends of the earth, one scholar writes, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary-minded we become. Might I say that a believer who isn't busy sharing their faith and concern for the lost, I'm going to be very bold, but I, I would argue they need to evaluate how they're walking in the spirit. I feel that in many ways the church, big C, not little c, all right? Big C, the church, many within the church love their seclusion in the comfortable, well-lit room, forgetting that we're to be, have the blinds open and we're to go forth with the light. And that's the case here. And you're going to see this is a problem for the early church. They got the, oh, we'll be a missionary to Jerusalem. It's wonderful. And what does the Lord have to do? He has to turn up the heat and spread it. And then we do, same problem. 
He turns up the heat again, and the gospel goes out. And I love what they declare, these disciples in Pig Latin or whatever language they're speaking. Notice when it says, they were all speaking in one language, verse 11, about what? The great deeds God has done. <laughs> the great deeds. I mean, that's the role of the Spirit, is to glorify the Lord and Christ and point ourselves to Him. It's, it's what... This same phrase is used at the triumphal entry when the disciples were taking off their cloaks saying, this is the king, the one that has been promised to us. Mighty deeds is what Luke's first volume is all about. In your notes, I stated the work of the Lord is often met with confusion, amazement, and even mockery. And yet those that are filled with the Holy Spirit, there will be a response of praise. Ephesians 5, 17 says, be filled with the Spirit. And then 18 through 20 says, let's give praise to the Lord. This isn't about us. This is exciting. And that's what we see here. I mean, this is one huge praise service. I love it. They didn't have Ben to lead them in worship, but they handled it. And it's good. Notice the text. 6, 7, as well as 12, we see this one response, and that is of confusion. That one term, there's several terms that occur here. One can be translated more of a surprise. It's, it's used, uh, and there's also one of wonder, which is used of response from crowds to what Jesus performs. But there's also another, and that is used of more of a, I'm not sure what to make of this kind of an idea. And while praise is on the lips of the disciples, that is for sure there, as we see in verse 11, the crowd responds with three questions and one statement. Three questions and one statement. Now notice this. The first two questions really are stating the same thing <clears throat> there in verses 7 and 8. And that is, how can these Galileans be speaking our language? How can they do that? Oh, grant you, Galileans would have been fluent in Aramaic. That's the local language. These disciples would have been fluent in Greek. They probably also knew some Hebrew and some Latin. But how did they know Arabic? I don't know. How did they know these other languages? Aren't these Galileans? And by the way, that is a pejorative nuance. <laughs> because... The dear sweet folk who live in Jerusalem were urbanites and there was a bit of a snobbery for those who lived in rural Galilee. In fact, one writer states from the first century that Galileans failed to distinguish their gutturals properly. <laughs> the accent gave them away. Oh, yeah, you guys are from Galilee. You're not from Jerusalem. The high and mighty sophisticated ones, right? And, and you know, we know you're, you're not from Hoosier land. You got a Long Island accent or you speaking with a drawl from the south. They knew they could distinguish. And they're saying, how can this be? And there's, a, there's another question that's raised there. And that says in verse 12, what does this all mean? Good news is Peter will answer that. Bad news is you have to come back next week. But we will look at it, right? Uh, Peter will answer that question, how can we know? What's going on? What does this all entail? But then there's a statement in verse 13. It states here, but others jeered at the speaker saying they are drunk on new wine. 
Some listeners will respond with outright accusations and mockery. <laughs> it's ironic that they say they are to be drunk with new wine. What does Paul state in Ephesians 5? In fact, if you would, just turn there. Look what he states in this, this passage, Ephesians 5. Verse 7, starting in 18, excuse me, 518. And do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. And again, I mentioned this, but speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music, the hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks. Uh, how, how ironic. <laughs> Paul, he would say, yeah, you're not to be filled with wine, you need to be filled with the Spirit, which is clear because similar to strong drink, we need to lose control of ourselves, our fears, our insecurities, and allow the Spirit to lead to control and to live with the desire to glorify the Lord. Certainly, alcohol can provide temporary relief, but only the Spirit can provide true satisfaction and lasting joy. But notice what the text says. The crowd declares, some within the crowd, they are drunk on new wine. And some scholars will state, well, this is not the time of the year for wine, so we've got a problem in the text. Well, new wine can also refer to sweet wine, wine that has been heavily diluted. And Keener, in his commentary, I think is spot on. In other words, they had these disciples, if you're accusing them of being drunk on new wine, they had to have consumed gallons of wine. And Keener is saying, not only are they accusing them of being drunk, but they're also accusing them of being of gluttons. Look at these slobs from Galilee. This is the idea. But you know there's a theological significance to the phrase new wine? And that is found in Luke chapter 5. The Lord states, but those days are coming when the bridegroom is taken from them. At that time they will fast he also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. No way. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and they will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Wow. What's he referring to? <laughs> Through Christ, a new approach has come. The book of Acts will chronicle the growth of understanding of the early church and the question of the proper limits of the influence of Jewish heritage, especially when it comes to circumcision, food, the law, and Gentiles. We're going to see a transformation of God's people as we move through this book because Christ has brought something better. Hebrews 8 states, But now Christ has obtained a superior ministry, since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. And so the crowd is confused. The crowd has a variety of responses, but the disciples filled with the Spirit give praise to God. And praise the Lord, right? The recipe for the birth of the church was not locked in a vault. <laughs> but as the Lord promised, he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell among his people to mark those who are his. And he continues to do so. Just as he guided and comforted them, he does to us as followers of Christ to empower, to fulfill the work he has for each one of us.
so that we can also join those disciples and say praise to the Lord for indeed great things he has done. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. And in it, we read of the power of the Spirit who plays a vital role in the life of believers. Lord, you've given us an incredible resource, one who empowers, but one who guides, one who instructs, one that allows us to to bear his fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, the list goes on in Galatians 5. And Lord, we thank you. And this outpouring of the Spirit here in Acts 2 and the establishment of the church, and next week we'll look at Peter's sermon and the response of 3,000 individuals coming to know you. It's an understanding, Lord, that indeed all glory goes to you for indeed great things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.